0: Yo, 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 welcome back to another fantastic episode of the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. I want to first thank you for your patience, as I know it's been a couple weeks since I've released a new episode, but if I'm being frank, I was just dealing with some inspiration stuff, and I wasn't in the right mindset, I wasn't in the right space to release an episode. So after a little bit of searching, a little bit of time off, here we are, and I am so excited for this episode My guest today is Hakeem Davis, and he is a good friend of mine and an ex-college football teammate. However, my recollection of the ending to his career was very tragic, and I didn't get clarification on it until this episode. And I'm so glad to be able to share it with you, because you are going to get an inside look from somebody who suffers with severe bipolar disorder. This was a really powerful conversation for me and for Hakeem, and I'm just so excited to share it with you guys. So I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Welcome back to another fantastic episode of the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast, the show that features amazing stories of recovery and success experience the ups and downs of entrepreneurship and sobriety and the mindset it takes to be successful through the lens of our guests. Now, here's your host, J-Ball.
0: Yo, 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 welcome back to another fantastic episode of the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is Justin and I'm your host. Today, is is going to be a really cool experience for me because I have an uh, an ex teammate of mine. We played college football together at Western Washington University, when home of the Vikings had a football program during the first recession in two thousand eight two thousand nine. They actually ended up canceling that program. However, this guest of mine was a great talent in college. He was physically gifted. He was he came from a great high school program, and and we ended up. Uh, becoming friends at Western Washington University, he's a year or two younger than me. He played middle linebacker with with one of the captains on our team, who was also a good friend of mine, Craig Keenan. Shout out to Craig Keenan out there. Uh, and I lived with Craig Keenan in Hawaii for a little bit. So this guest that you're gonna you're gonna hear from today, we go we go back uh, a few years now, but we haven't talked so much in the last few years, and and he, there's some things that. That happened in college that I'm super, super curious about hearing from and getting the story from his mouth because it sounds like he's got a sobriety journey that he's just started about four months ago. His name is Hakeem Davis. I knew him in college as Brandon Elliott or B. Elliott, so we'll get into the name change as well. But Brandon, Hakeem, thanks for joining the show, man.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It's an honor to be here.
0: It was an honor for you to reach out, and I'm glad you did. I'm glad you found my podcast because I think you're gonna add a ton of value to this show and and your personal experiences and just and just kind of the stuff that that we go through when we struggle with substance and, and when we have some mental mental health stuff going on. So, you know, before we get to our college days and before we talk about, you know, some of our experiences at college and playing football, tell our listeners real quick about who Brandon Elliott was growing up, you know, and, and just bring us back a little bit. So,
1: Brandon Elliott was my nickname growing up. I was born Hakeem Davis. My mom switched my name to Brandon Elliott when she left my father. So, I was born in Hawaii, actually, in Honolulu. Moved to Tacoma, Washington, and that's where I first got started. Some stuff happened with, uh, you know, getting molested and those kinds of things. Okay. But I had a good childhood. It was Sports was everything for me. Like, my mom always taught me. Get, get good grades and play college football. And that was my whole mindset. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I was going to do. That's, that's what I spoke into my life. And that's what I did. And I didn't have any uh, vision past college. So that kind of kind of <laughs> plays into where all that whole ego, that whole name change, that whole mental health crisis, that, that plays into it. Okay. But we moved that to Tacoma when I was like uh, five or six and went to the suburbs of Tacoma in Auburn, Washington. And that's where I had just a amazing, you know, no moves. We were there the whole time. The community supported us, me, my sister, and brother. And, yeah, first, homecoming king, captain of the football, basketball, baseball team, walked on to Western and ended up getting a scholarship after my freshman year. And then that's where we met.
0: Yeah, yeah, man. And that's, that's awesome. I actually didn't know you walked on because I did the same thing. I walked on, too. And it's funny because now being a high school coach out here, it's funny the amount of exposure that the kids get out here. And I know this is completely off topic, but since you since you mentioned high some high school football and I'm here for sports references as well, the kids out here, because the there's so many more colleges and because the there's just so many there's just so many schools around here on the East Coast. You know, it's 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 old in its history and there's a ton of schools and the exposure that kids got out here is not what we got on the West Coast. It's not what we got in Seattle, in Tacoma. Because I tell you what, the kids that I know out here that are going and playing college D one college football were half the athletes that I think you and I were. I think they're, but they just get so much more exposure. And that's you know, again, that's a side note. But Brandon and Hakeem, I'll call you Hakeem now since that since that was always your name. He was a great talent, man. This guy, I mean, he's a big dude. He's a middle linebacker. He's quick. He's fast. You know. He wasn't always the heady guy, but he had a, he had a head of cement, man, and he would he would hit you. Talk to me about your high school days. I know you mentioned briefly uh, a little bit of sexual abuse. Uh, talk to me about brothers, your brothers and sisters, um, maybe the relationship with your parents, and when did this sexual abuse happen?
1: So there was three of us: me, and my brother, my sister is two years younger, uh, and my brother is two years younger than her. Okay, and we all come from different dads. Okay, and. So we ended up living with my stepdad. Our, you know He's a great stepdad. He and my mom met when I was about four and then they had my little brother. One of my first memories is my mom telling me that she's pregnant with my little brother. And then my next memory is the sexual abuse. My dad's brother shouldn't be outing him, but he molested me when I was a kid, like five years old. And that's uh, that innocence was taken away from me and that kind of aggression and uh, wanting to take it out on other people. It's begun right then. He was prosecuted and did time in juvenile hall and all that. But my brother and sister and me were sports. My brother and I were more sports. Sabrina, my sister, my brother's Cody. Sabrina was in and out. She's the middle child. You know, she she was doing middle child stuff. But anyways, through high school, she she held the records for lifting and my brother held the records for lifting and I always skipped
0: the weight room and went to or had a job. Well, that's that's your entrepreneurial mind right there, probably, you know, at a young age coming out, which we're going to get into. And I thank you for, you know what, you're not outing anybody uh, because it was illegal and, and sexual abuse is just illegal. Uh, and unfortunately, even that the fact that you just said that you, you hesitated for a split second to protect that person is a sign of the stigma that's still around here right? Because even in that moment, as we're talking about it, you stop and you say, man, I'm outing him. Well, fucking he molested you, dude. And so you're not outing him. He was prosecuted. He went to jail, whatever, whatever. You're not outing him. He did something illegal that probably fucked you up for a while. So, you know, I don't want, I want to empower people to speak up about their molesters because I was molested too by multiple people growing up. And if you listen to some of my previous podcasts, you know, I explain a little bit more in detail on those, but... You know, I've been in that boat before, man. And uh, and I thank you for sharing that. So we get to college, right? And and like I said, Brandon's a couple years. What, what year did you graduate high school? 03. 03. And I graduated 02. So he was a year behind me. And I, I mean, just a great talent. He looked apart. It was great. There was a moment a few years into college or, you know, I can't, I don't remember exactly when it was. It was towards the end of my career. But there was a moment. Where there, I don't know if it was a a mental break that you had uh, or what happened, but from my, I want to, I'm going to tell my my what I heard through the grapevine, and then I'm going to let Brandon, or excuse me, I'm, I keep calling, calling you Brandon. I'm going to let Hakeem tell you his side of the story, and and let's see, let's compare those two. So basically, Craig Keenan, uh, who's like a, who I mentioned at the top of the show, is a good friend of ours. He was the starting linebacker at the time. He was also roommates with uh, Hakeem at the time. And he was good friends of mine. We hung out all the time. We all did, you know, and, and Craig came, came back to the house one day and he's like, man, like he starts f- freaking out about some stuff going on at the house. And, and he said, I'll refer to you as Brandon in the story. He said, you know, Brandon, he, he, I don't know what's going on with him, man. He, he shaved his eyebrows. He shaved his head. He was drawing all over the walls. Like, I, I can't, I can't understand what he's saying. You know, there's monkeys and there's pictures and there's, um, and and he was scared, but he was also, he, you know, when he's telling me, he just did, he had no idea how to react or what to do, and he was scared. I think he was laughing just to kind of play it all off, but I think in 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 reality, I think he was just scared. He had no idea what to do, and and I think the only thing he could say was that he, that that you he had like a mental break of some sort, and and really that's all I knew about it. You know, you took some time off of football. I do think you ended up coming back right before I got injured and then I spent some time away from football and I I never really asked questions. I, We all kind of knew it was a sensitive subject. None of our coaches talked to us about mental health. None of our coaches talked to us about the situation. I think it probably was handled poorly in hindsight as far as just getting, talking about it and talking about what happened rather than the rumor mill. But again, I don't know how much coaches and everybody were really advised on mental health back then either. So that was my point of view that was my perspective and that's just what i heard through the grapevine so i'm really interested to hear from you what actually happened in that experience i went to class and i gave i asked my
1: recreation uh professor if i could give a speech right this is when it all started and i gave a speech i was excited and uh he said i think you need to go see the doctor something's going on so i went and saw the nurse the doctor Filled out all this paperwork and they're like, You're you're having a manic episode. You're bipolar. And so I came, I remember I was dressed in a suit. I had one of my cars. I pulled up to practice. I tell Chris Robinson, I was like, Man, they told me I'm crazy. I knew I was crazy. And Chris told me something I always remembered. He said, Hakeem, you're not crazy. You just have a mental health issue. And I've I've hung on to that. So sometimes when I'm thinking I'm crazy, I'm like, I'm not crazy. This might be insanity that I'm I'm experiencing but I'm not crazy. So that gave me confidence ever since then. But anyways, the professionals, a manic episode, bipolar to all grandiose thoughts, delusional. I don't, At the time I had like five cars or, you know, one motorcycle, one truck, just super ambitious and going after it. And that's the first time. So my aunt, my mom came and stayed with me at the apartment me and Craig shared. And she said, uh, you're having a mental, you're, you're having a grandiose manic episode And I was like, Mom, was I molested when I was a kid? And she's like, Yes, you were. And that's the first time she told me the story. Because to me, it was like a dream. I didn't quite believe it. So, in my experience, I was thinking, I I did some research and it was like an ego break. Like, Coach Rob Smith had just quit. I had, like, I told you, I was kind of leading up to this when I told you that earlier, is that I had no vision past college. Playing college football was my dream. And I was doing it. I had good grades, I had a girlfriend. I was, I was balling out, you know, I could, I couldn't do much better than what I was doing. Five cars, like I said, you know, maxed out to the max. And I remember telling Craig that I wasn't happy. And Craig said, uh,
0: suck it up, bro. (laughs) You're doing fine. Did the, did the professor at the class, do you remember like what his concerns were on the speech that you were giving that, that made him say like, maybe you want to go talk to somebody? Well, I was like, You know when people say,
1: show your ass? I was really showing my ass because I I just had that tattoo in my ass. So this is the thing. I was explaining how you can make a million dollars. I was like, all you got to do is make $999,000 and then make one more dollar. We can all do it.
0: Let's go. I'm like pumping up the crowd, you know? I was on a psychotic break, man, for sure. So then when Craig found you or when all of this stuff that I explained was going on, like when was that? And how did, did your parents come in after that? Or do you remember that experience at all? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I remember most everything. So after that I started taking my lithium and doing everything that I was supposed to do, but still in that agitated, pumped up state, you know, this thing lasted for like two weeks Yeah. after my mom and aunt came, I decided I was playing basketball at midnight, you know, like, And I decided with no no gas, no money, one of my cars, I was going to go see my family. So I drove, I drove down, saw them, played basketball. Then what really happened was why I had to take that Tom off was I decided I was going to sell my truck. So I had Steve Davis meet me in Seattle uh, with my truck and the truck was messing up. I couldn't find directions to find the guy that was going to buy it. Anyways, this uh, I throw. I was wearing a suit. I get down into my underwear. Anyways, I find Steve. I am in the truck. The car's parked at where Steve's staying. I give the truck to this guy who helps me. Like I have the title in hand. I end up giving my truck away. I was like, "All you gotta do is come watch me play in the Seattle Stadium next year, and I'm going pro. And you know, just come watch it, and I'll give you this truck." So I gave the guy a truck. I was giving bread to homeless people. Just out there, man. I was thinking every song on the radio was directed towards me. Just delusional, you know, having a manic episode. Kind of like what Craig would call it. At that time, nobody knows what a manic episode is, besides professors and stuff, because that professor had probably seen something like that before. He knew what I was talking about. I resented him for the longest time, but really it, it helped me, you know, start putting a name on this on this battle. The only other warning sign I had was like a sophomore in high school and I had good grades, a girlfriend, all that stuff. Again, I told my basketball coach, I was like, what's the meaning of life? You know, what am I doing here? I don't have any real friends. And I think, I think that was my first manic episode, but it wasn't, it didn't affect my life. That ego break I had that you're all aware of. So when I was in Seattle, I ended up driving my car to like a Fred Mart uh, like a Safeway. And I, I was in there, I was pounding down Gatorades and saying money's worthless. I don't need anything. I'm Jesus. You know, all the stuff you hear they put me in a mental institute and I had to stay there for 16 days. And that's why I missed my winter quarter that
0: year, but I came back in the spring. Thank you for giving us the lowdown and for, for telling that story. You know, hopefully, hopefully some of the, some of our teammates get to hear this podcast because uh, you're, you know, that, that didn't get to hear it from your lips. There was just a lot of speculation, you know, and a lot of, I mean, people just didn't know. And the only way to kind of get through that, I think, and to manage something like that that's hard to understand is to make fun of it. And, and, that, and, that, and that'll ease the tension of uncomfortability. But I hope that, that people from, the, from that Western Washington University team get to hear this, because even at that time, I was, I'm very, I was very interested in the mind. And I knew that there's something deeper than what I was getting from Craig. I knew that there was something, there's something going on. And, and so I thank you for, for clarifying, for, for being able to be vulnerable and tell that story because that was, that was my last memory of you really other until I met you in Carolina a couple years ago for a Seahawks game, you know, that was my only memory of you and it, it was an unfortunate one. And it was, it was one that, you know, wasn't super positive and I'm glad that we could be here right now to talk about that situation. So let's talk about how you move on. What was your experience like? What was your 16 days like in the mental hospital? My sister spent I think I want to say 21 days or 24 days or something in a mental hospital when I was growing up. She had uh, a little bit of a mental breakdown and spent uh, about 3 weeks in there. And I didn't get a lot from her about what what it was like. So I'm curious what what was your experience like? Well, first I'm grateful to the cop who sent me to the mental institute instead of
1: jail, because the mental institute has chicks, pianos, <laughs> other people, good food, ambient, psychotic drugs. Like yeah. it was way better than going to the jail. Cause they took could have took me to jail for disturbing the peace or whatever. Right. Tased me because I was big, black and aggressive, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh but I went to the mental institute. I went to the like the nicest one, downtown Seattle, the one that looks like a castle. Okay. 16 days, man, I saw a guy with who slit his th- own throat and he had like staples in his stuff and they were giving him shock therapy. Uh, this one lady, she was in her 50s and just super bright lady. But she said that the older she gets, the more manic episodes she has. This one guy taught me how to play the piano. Like, I, like, and I was such in a manic state that I could just all of a sudden play a piano. Like I was just like killing it like I was a composer. But I was taking Ambien and Lithium, and my grandpa came to visit. My parents came to visit. My buddy came up, and we played Xbox. You know, it was – at the time, of course, I wanted out, and I resented it. But it was a good time to learn about my illness, learn that I wasn't crazy, and then be around other people that were going through the same thing and to know that, you know, stuff, it works out.
0: Yeah. That's awesome to hear that because I I find the same thing – in the rooms when I first got sober, I found the same thing in the rooms of AA, that it was great to be around people that knew what I was going through, that were dealing with the same shit, that had the same mental illnesses, because addiction is a mental illness. Uh, They were dealing with that too. And so, you know, I can see the parallels between being in a mental hospital and dealing with your, some more, I I don't know if I'll call them more serious, but just some stuff that need more supervision, I would say and And that, like you said, like you cro- you're crossing paths with with people that you probably would never would have crossed paths with before. So I think that's amazing, and, and the chance and and yeah, thank you to the cop that that took you there instead of, instead of somewhere else that that could have, who knows where you end up if you go to jail in that state. So you spend the 16 days there and then you get out. What's going through your head when you get out of a mental hospital? You got to go back to college. You are going to go back to football. What is going through your mind when you, when you get out and you got to reacclimate into life and you know people like me don't know the story and probably are formulating our own things and listening to whatever people are saying? What are you thinking? Uh, I, don't, I have this buddy, Rafiq.
1: I don't know if you ever met him, Rafiq. But Feek told me, he's like, man, no, people don't recover from this. Like, I can't believe you made it back. And he's like, man, you're stronger than most and you're going to make it. You're going to do fine. And I was so cocky in my head. I was like, I'm, I'm one and done. I beat this thing, you know, uh, you know, come to find out that <laughs> that wasn't true. But uh, I, I had to write a letter to get back into college because my grades had dropped off. My grades were fine, but I missed all those classes I dropped out of or whatever. So I had to write a story to get back. And there's a little bit of a depression, you know, hard on myself. Like, what am I going to do? And uh, what are people going to think? But I really didn't care what people thought. I was there to ball out. And uh, when Rob Smith got there, he said, Hakeem, you could probably play pro. And I was like, bet. Now I have something to do after college. So I really focused. I got good grades and started just put the hammer down on trying to play pro.
0: That's a great place to be. I mean, good for you for for. Just saying like, I don't give a shit what people think because that wouldn't have been me. You know, I would have been terrified of what people were thinking about me. But I think that same, that thread, that entrepreneurial spirit, that thread is constantly going through your life from, you know, when you were a kid. And part of that entrepreneurial spirit is not giving a shit what other people think because you're going to fail. You're going to do, you're going to fail at a lot of things and you're going to, you're going to start businesses, which we're going to talk about. You've started many and have closed many and are still going so, you know, we'll touch on that, but that entrepreneurial spirit and that entrepreneurial thread in your life has always been there. I can see it in just the, the the few stories that you've told us so far. So when you get out of college, actually, hold on, let's rewind again, because you said I did catch something. You said that you thought that you were a one and done with this, but you found out that that wasn't necessarily the case. What do you mean by that?
1: Oh, I've had several manic episodes since I've been in. The mental institute a ha- handful of times, arrested like 12 times, uh, manic episodes that have lasted two to three months. <laughs> you know, I thought I kicked it in his butt and that I, I wasn't going to be like that lady who had more manic episodes the older she got.
0: I mean, is this something you're going to have to deal with forever? Like, will you always have manic episodes? Yeah, there's no there's no cure for
1: bipolar so they always they're gonna put you on medication to help you stabilize it. I'm on two experimental medications that are for helping with relapse. Relapse is having another psychotic break, another grandiose manic episode. So I'm on two off the books uh, medications. So most likely I'll deal with it the rest of my life, and I'll I'll go manic. And 50% of people who take medication still have manic episodes. So it's a crapshoot.
0: Can you explain to the listeners, what are some signs if you're, if, if you think someone might be bipolar or maybe you don't, you just, maybe, maybe you just don't know, made something, someone's in your life, friend, family member, something, and, and, and maybe it's big mood swings or maybe they get just hyper focused on something and forget about everything else. Like what are some signs of someone going through a manic episode?
1: Well, I'll just talk about my own experience because I don't know other people, but uh, I call them triggers. So at first, I'll start getting up earlier in the morning. I'll start uh, doing my self-help stuff. I'll start. It leads up to where I'll find myself organizing shit in my garage at 2 in the morning. You know, like I have racing thoughts. I get super sexual. I don't have to eat. And I have I have all kinds of energy. So racing thoughts to where I'm talking like a mile a minute, like I'm on Molly or something. Yeah, I mean those those are the few things. Super paranoid and delusional, like thinking right. that I am God. Uh, that still re- reoccurring theme, you know. I still think that like somebody cuts out in front of me, like oh I'm God. I remember I told that guy to cut out in front of me because they're teach me patience.
0: Like you have thoughts like that all the time, like like I'm on one, you know. Now, do you? We've talked a lot about the manic side of it. Do you swing the other way as bad as you swing to the manic side?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I first started, it wasn't as bad, but now, like this, like one of the last ones I was on, I was manic for about three months. So that that put me in a depressive mood. So I, I went in a depressive mood for two weeks. Talked to my therapist. I know you're big on therapy, and then I researched on how to kill depression. And all of a sudden, I was out of depression. Normal and then back into a manic episode because I was so positive. It was ridiculous. I, I like reconnected with old friends, did self-help stuff, worked out, and I was just out of depression and raring to go again. It put me right back in a manic episode, and now I've been trying to manage my depressive moods in a more thought-out way. Man,
0: for people who don't struggle with mental illness, what, what Hakeem is talking about right now is tough, can you imagine and I think everyone has has dealt with a little bit of depression, you know, whether it be circumstantial or whatever, someone dies, you know, you get depressed, sad. But then to dig yourself out of that only to swing into a manic episode. Like I know you may not see it as like demoralizing when you're in it and you're going through the swing, like you're you're in the manic phase and you're out of the but like for people around you, it must be demoralizing to watch yeah. you go through this and like see you in the depths of of despair, of depression. Work your way out, do the things, and cope with depression the the healthy way. Talking to a therapist only to have your brain chemistry swing in the opposite direction, and now you're just not only are you positive and energetic it's you're positive, you're so positive and energetic that it's to your demise and it's it's insane i mean it, i don't mean you're insane i just think that the whole thing like you do everything you can and i deal with depression i dip into depression and and it's a few days normally and it's deep and it's dark and i and i need to be by myself I think I have some of the characteristics that you're talking about on the manic side. I just, you know, I don't think I'm all the way, you know, to, to the extreme, but I can definitely see a little bit of that, uh, of those swings in me too. But man, like, and to, and, and I, and I, when your friend, and I can't remember who you were saying, but when your when your buddy was telling you that, like, you've dealt with a lot of shit and, and because of that, like, you're going to do big things, that's what I believe about people who deal with mental health and addiction is that they are I think really gifted people. I think they are they're meant to do great things and change the world, but our brain chemistry is just a little bit fucked up and we and 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 we got to get a hold of that, whether it be by medication or therapy or or whatever and everybody's different and and we're lucky to have live in a country that researches mental health and and coping mechanisms and things like that you know so you know congratulations to you you know for being here for for making it here to talk about the to talk about this on this podcast and just to be where you're at just to to still be going and not giving up because i have suicidal thoughts when i get depressed and if i were to last if i were in a depression for 2 weeks man i would have it might be i don't it might be over for me i don't know like it yeah. It's a scary place to be when you're in your own mind and nobody nothing that people doing around you can can help you. It's just it's just a helpless place to be. And this guy, man, Akeem, you're killing it, man. And and I thank you. I want to talk about your entrepreneur your entrepreneur life now. We, you know, we I talked to you, I could I could sense the thread just from what you're saying. So give us what what have you been doing after college you obviously didn't play in the NFL was that a dream of yours when 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 you when you ended your 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 football career what was that like i'm curious cuz we did play with a few NFL players on that team when when we get to your the end of your football career tell us a little bit about what that was like and and then how you transitioned into the workforce so what happened was i ran a five flat
1: 40 at pro day <laughs> and i was like ooh i was done uh because my senior year, my junior year, which ended up being my senior year because I dropped out early, retired early, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started a network marketing company. When I ran a 5-flat-40, I was like, I'm going full force into this marketing company, owning my own business, and screw the NFL. Because Shane Simmons, you know, he could always run a little faster, dunk a little better, squat a little more, power clean a little more, run the 4 five forty. And they're like, Shane probably won't even get drafted. And I'm like, damn, what's that mean for me? You know? <laughs> yeah. He ended up, Shane ended up playing, didn't he? Yeah, he played two seasons. And uh, he set up a gym and, uh, you know, did did really well, for, is doing really well for himself. Yeah. But I, uh, my mentors were telling me the NFL is going to teach you how to get a big old pile of money. We're going to teach you how to get a stream of money. We're going to teach you how to be wealthy, not rich. Yeah. And so that's, they had, they they, hung, they sunk the hook into me, and I was on it. Just hit the ground running. Haven't stopped ever since.
0: Who who were these people that 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 were speaking to you about entrepreneurship? Uh, this guy that makes a million dollars a
1: month. His name's Brad Duncan. He's in the Amway. He lives in Bellevue, Spokane area. And uh-huh. my best friend's dad, Steve. He uh he so he was the most successful guy I knew in high school, and I was always like, I always knew after college when I was a kid that I was going to wear a suit. That's all I knew. I didn't know what I was going to do. So my best friend's dad wore a suit. So I just kind of wanted to do what he did. But they recruited me into Amway after my psychotic break, actually. After I got out of the hospital, they took me snowboarding. My best friend took me snowboarding, and we talked it all out. And then he said he had to go to a business meeting. I was like, what kind of business meeting? So I went to the business meeting, started my Amway business, like, that week before I even went back to school that spring. I was the shit. I, at school – I was having 23 people show up to my little apartment to show them the plan about how they're all going to be rich. And uh, I was like my mentor would come up with 28-inch Jesse James rims on H2s and like with four guys in suits jumping out. And I'm like, let's get it, you know, yeah, like pumping
0: them up. Uh, What's Amway? I'm not familiar
1: with Amway. It stands for American Way. It's one of the largest um, privately owned companies there is. They teach you how to how to do network marketing, pyramid schemes, some people call it. But they they have clean products, household products, vitamins, supplements, energy drinks, and they're all expensive. But you mm-hmm. cut out the middleman of like a retail store. Mm-hmm. You start out your own website, and you the, all the traffic you get to go through your website. But the real money is in starting other businesses, business owners, and the, the compound effect it takes to make that passive income. So mm-hmm. the whole thing is two to five years, you're going to be playing golf on the beach, making money while you sleep.
0: Right. Right. And I know that I, now that you're explaining it, I know, I know that that scheme and a lot of people do call it a pyramid scheme. I worked for, and they, they did call it network marketing, um, circle, something circle. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I was selling, uh, when I, I was making like six figures being a director of banquets at a hotel in Manhattan, New York. And, uh, I left there when I, had, when I realized I had a drinking problem, and I quit hospitality, and I, I went to, to this company, and it was, it was door-to-door, door-knocking, business-to-business. I was selling Yankees tickets. No, I wasn't, but the guy, actually, the group that I was, uh, the team that I was on before I got there were selling Yankees tickets. I ended up selling, um, shit, I sold Makeup, and I sold Verizon but it's door to door. It's entrepreneurial and people and I didn't have the same appreciation for those people as I do now because the there you can call it whatever you want to call it pyramid or whatever. But what you're learning is how is how to sell, how to network, how to how to sell yourself, how to market yourself, how to talk to people. It was is it similar? Were you kind of, were you guys like door to door type stuff or B2B type stuff? Uh, not B2B. It was straight up. you start with your family, your friends, and then, uh,
1: strangers and you know, like Brad, Brad, he makes a
0: million a month residual Mm -hmm. passive income. Mm -hmm. And he would, he would just, he just taught the business. And then you want to get people out of your office opening their own offices, right? Because then and then you get a consulting, you get like a consulting fee for every person that you put out of your office who gets their own office and they start to build their own team and since they right. were under your umbrella first, yeah, you make a percentage. Part of their profit, their revenue trickles down to you because you 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 taught them, you brought them up they have to hit sales goals, you got to hit certain certain metrics and as you hit those metrics you start your own team and then you st- yeah. and then you build from there and and the idea is you you teach systems so that it's replicatable so that you can eventually step out of the system and the business still runs, which as a theory and everything that is that is what entrepreneurs do. You can own a business and not be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are above owning business and I don't mean this as like they're above owning. I mean like they're looking at the business from a different angle. They're looking at it overall and they're out of the business, but they've taught people how to run their business correctly with systems that are replicatable. And that's what these pyramid schemes, if, and I'm using air quotes is is, if you want to call them, that is what they're doing. They're teaching you how to build a business, how to build systems, how to build into people, how to talk to people And then, and and that's the very base level of being an entrepreneur and people that knock that shit like I did. And I would make fun of these people going door to door knocking and stuff like that. You know, these people probably own big businesses right now, but I did that for about six months. And so, Hey man, I, I completely understand where that is. And I, and I encourage people, if you want to be an entrepreneur, truly want to be an entrepreneur, start there, start there, find a network marketing company and start learning how to talk to people, start learning a sales pitch, start learning how to build your business because uh, that's a great way to start. So when you, when you went from Amway, where did, so how long did Amway last and what did you do next? I did four years
1: in Amway and didn't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew or chase the girl, girls that do. I got a DUI that spring and what I did was I went to intensive outpatient treatment and the lady challenged me to not drink for three years that would prove that I wasn't an alcoholic. So I was like, bet. So I didn't <laughs> I didn't drink, smoke, custard, chew, or chase the girls I do for three years, working a job, doing Amway, bartending slash uh, bouncing at first at a club. And uh, I didn't drink for three years. But as soon as that third year came up, to the date, I just got smashed. And, you know, like I couldn't wait for that first sip to prove that I wasn't an alcoholic. You know, I'd, I'd made it three years. But anyways, so Amway, it led into the 2008-2009 crash, and it just went all downhill. But I'd met a girl since I was only working on myself and doing my thing. I wasn't chasing girls. But this one girl came to me, and we had a partnership. And when Amway fell through, we started a nail salon. Uh, She had a nail salon, and I started a bar. So I was 26. I own my own bar and with my best friend, the same best friend I told you about and his dad, his dad was my manager mm-hmm. and uh, we, we started the bar business because we'd been in the bar business on and off at 20 years old. They owned a bar and that's what I did on the weekends. Mm-hmm. But anyways, so there was a bar. They're like, Hey, Akeem, you're 26. You own a bar. Don't do drugs. Don't chase girls. Don't buy, spend all your money you know, on fast cars and houses. So I did all of that at one time. And in two years, the bar had failed. And that's when uh, we chose to move to Tennessee because of the cost of living and take that one nail salon mm-hmm. and franchise it out and make it like the 7-Eleven of, of nail salons. Because the nail salon business is so disenfranchised, that there's no, there's no McDonald's and nails, you know? So I was going to make it uh, my system. Like you were saying, I was going to create the system to do that for nails, and I did. I started five nail salons in Tennessee, and three of them are still up and running. We did a uh, huge revenue. We're we're millionaires for sure within four years. Until that all crashed, you know, crash and burn. But I met my new mm-hmm. wife.
0: Okay. Okay. So I want to go back to your first business that you opened. You opened a bar. How do you? I want to talk about the finances of this because a lot of people want to open businesses, but they have no idea about how to finance or how to open or like, how did you finance opening your first bar?
1: So me and my buddy were manager and he was the manager of an Italian restaurant and I was the bartender, the bar manager and we got fired on the same day. Uh, Cause we we're talking about owning our own bar. But when that happened, we made the decision we we're going to own our own bar. We weren't going to go work for anybody. We made so many people with so much money. We made the decision. And when you make a decision, there's action behind it. So what I did is find a location, gave the guy a promise that I'd come back with fifty thousand dollars in a week. And I came back with fifty thousand dollars. I don't know how many people I stabbed, how many people I put at gunpoint. I'm joking about that. But by the time next Friday, I had almost fifty thousand. Enough for him to be like, Yeah, here's my bar, do what you want with it. No kidding. So you raised fifty grand just from
0: friends and family?
1: Family, friends, credit cards, uh, mostly my girlfriend at the time who had the, had the bar. She came up with like 80, 90% of it. Yeah, we just made it happen.
0: Love that. You just made it happen. And, and what you said is poignant. You said when you make a decision, there has to be action behind it. And that's the difference between you and everyone else. You can say you're going to do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. But until you start moving, until there's action behind your words, it means nothing. That's awesome. That's a, and that's, it's very, very specific. After you, after you make a decision, there has to be action. So, so you, you start five, six nail salons. You move to Tennessee. You, fi- you, you, you open up these nail salons. Why does it fail? It doesn't fail. My ex is still a millionaire running three of those business to this
1: day. But my wife walked into the nail salon and uh, me and my ex were fighting and, and breaking up and splitting up what was what. Me, I fell for her. She fell for me. And we we're on the fast track to getting married, starting a family and having kids. I always wanted to be a family man. And my ex, her idea of fun was to make money, you know, super greedy, I found mm. out what greedy was and mm. it, it, I had a grossness in my mouth because I was being greedy. And so she gave me like $40,000 and a Beamer and me and my wife teamed up and we've
0: been a team ever since. Amazing. Amazing. Now, do you, you own businesses with your wife, your current wife?
1: No, we are in a transition period where, okay. uh, where we came here to Kentucky to take care of her granddad and he's gone on. Uh, passed away due to COVID and uh, health compli- compli- complications with dementia. but So we're in, okay. we're in a new season of our life. We're going to invest okay in real estate when it's time. And I just got my CDLs. So we're looking to work hard to at least this spring, maybe play this summer and then the fall reap the rewards and get back, start my own trucking business or just work for a job for now. But yeah, we got plans of being... Real estate moguls. Our hundred our hundred year goal is philanthropy, real estate, you know, doing whatever our grandkids want to do. We set big hundred year goals and just take off little bites one step at a time.
0: That's right. You don't eat a horse all at once, right? But you also have to dare to dream. You have to dare to put goals down that are bigger than what you think you can ever achieve. Absolutely.
1: How could you God just be like, you know, here's a Ferrari. You, I know you're only thinking about a a Honda, and you only put in the work for a Hyundai, But I decided I wanted to give you a Ferrari.
0: Right, exactly. That doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Right, exactly. And and I like that you're getting into real estate because that's what I do. I've been doing real estate now almost four years, and Devin, my fiance, and I run a a real estate buying and flipping business that I think is successful. Uh, we're we're going to be listing our first million dollar plus. Home next week. We're doing big time stuff. We're networking our asses off. So I love that you're getting into the real estate game, man. If if you you know if you ever want to connect after this, brother, I'd be happy to uh, happy to do that with you. Now we've talked a lot today, you know, about mental health, and we've gone through a little bit of your entrepreneurial journey. Let's let's talk about your your new journey, the sober life that you've started about four months ago why get sober? You did it for three years. Then you said you proved to yourself that you're not an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Have you had a change in heart?
1: Uh, Yeah. So my original sponsor told me that, or he would say in meetings, you know, you're an alcoholic when you're sitting in a meeting, wondering if you're an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) So I was an alcoholic. Cause I was literally doing that at the meeting. It was like, God told him to say that. But anyways, I had made the decision then that I was an alcoholic and went the, I did the 90 days and 90 days in AA, but I did nine months, you know, Christmas, New Year's Thanksgiving. I went nine months straight to a meeting, but I didn't change. I didn't do the steps. And my wife said like, you're sober, but you're still an asshole, you know? And she left me for a little bit and I worked on myself and, talked to her, communicated with her a bunch. And well, I'd like to say I stayed sober, but I didn't. Right when she left, I, I had a joint and a beer in my hand, like, you know, within 30 minutes.
0: Right. So now, so you've just, have you just gotten back on the horse? Like, I know you and I talked right before I hit record, told me you've been, you've been sober now for about four months. What was your, what was your drinking or using career like? And obviously that can't help your mental state
1: yeah so uh you know i guess i'll start at the beginning i've always been a liar when it comes to drinking right when i was first party i ever been to i told my mom i wasn't drinking and then of course i get arrested by the cops from running from the party and having a minor in possession so ever since the beginning i've been running in with the cops and lying you know saying i wasn't drinking and it's it's been a problem i have two duis so obviously i have a problem with alcohol because it affects me going to work. It affects my financial outcomes. It affects my relationships. Uh, but yeah, like I heard you say in the old podcast that you, that you, you had your mushroom phase, your acid phase, your, uh, I, I went through all the phases of uh, Molly. I tried Molly once. I was like, that's not enough. I got to do it again the next day, you know? But yeah, I, you know, I was drinking all the time. I, I would, I was proud of the fact that I'd never, every weekend of my life since I was like 17, I'd either been at a party or a bar my entire life. And I I was like, I'm a professional partier. I'm the best at it. I'm the life of the party. You know, this has no negative consequences. This is just me. So let's fast forward to about five months ago. I was bartending, telling myself I could do two drinks. I'm only going to have two. So with my medication, my psychiatrist they're like you guys you need to stop smoking weed so it's been a while since july since i smoked weed so i was like bam cut that out and then the psychiatrist was like you know you should not drink because it's going to affect your sleep and that was the only reason she gave me not to drink was that it'll affect my sleep she said keep it down to like two drinks so i get two tall cans or two ipas or two natty daddies and then six you know like uh, I would. I was always fucking with it and just taking it to the extreme, and then telling myself I could only have two, and then running back to the store and having six, and lying to my wife the whole time about how many I'd had, drinking and driving so that I could get it down before I got home. Just making terrible decisions. What I learned in AA is if if you had a problem to where you were gonna die because of it, you have a problem. Like I had no choice. If I had no choice to get sober, because I would have killed myself. The drinking and driving, the the drugs, the I, I was on you know, I was on a destructive path. I got myself sober by doing the October, you know, Joe Rogan sober October challenge with me and my buddy. We're like, we're gonna do October, we're gonna get sober. i have been trying to quit. I didn't tell him that for like, you know, months leading up to that. Sober October and I, I said to do this, I'm gonna try celebrate recovery. Have you heard of that?
0: Mhm. Yeah, yeah, I went to celebrate recovery for a while.
1: Yeah, so I decided to walk into celebrate recoveries. I knew my buddy was going and the rest is history. I started going to AA on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I've worked the steps this time. Have that spiritual life that I was denying.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Man, that's so good to hear. It's so good to hear you. The um The fact that you and I are just sitting here right now talking about a better life, you know, when about 15, 20 years ago, like it was, it was just so different, you know, our lives were different. And I remember that about you. Like, I think you and I both felt like we were the, we were professional partiers. We were the life of the party, you know, we, and, and yeah, I could identify with, with a lot of that. I got to ask you, my man, what's different about this time? Like what's what's different? I hate I hate
1: saying that it's different this time because my old sponsor would just rip into people. Not that he would just call them out; right? he would call them out in his stories or a roundabout way. He wouldn't just straight say it to him. But he, you know, there is no different this time. He's like, I got sober the first time and stayed sober. Like, whatever. But this time, it's God, man. I worked the steps first. Out the willingness. There's the willingness pyramid the cornerstone capstone. And I was willing to let God into my life. I was willing to work the steps. I was willing, you know, all step one, step two, step three. I said it all before, but I didn't mean it. And finally I got the right sponsor. I did, I did the steps and I've done my resentments and I'm living the 10th, 11th and 12th step going through my amends right now, just slowly breaking down that ag- agnostic atheist. I was a professional atheist, man. I studied so hard to be an atheist. And I I, did, I had never studied that hard to be a Christian. And I'll, it was ridiculous. So I switched it. And I'd like to say I studied that hard to be a Christian, but I didn't. It was just a a feeling and working the steps that got me there quicker than all the work I had to put in to be an atheist. You know, liberal arts college taught us to be atheist. You know, I was saved at a young age. So that's my higher power is Jesus.
0: Yeah. I think that's it, man. It's for me is if you're serious, if you're really serious about something, you'll do it, you know? And I think it's really easy for me to sit here and say that, but I think it, when it, where it all boils down to it is, is that like how you must not been that serious about it if you didn't, if it didn't happen, you know? Hakeem, congratulations on on everything that that you've done, everything that you've overcome, everything that that you're doing right now. Congratulations on getting your family and your wife back, and 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 just taking the right steps, man, to to be truly Hakeem Davis, to truly live your life, and and to and to start accepting and receiving the things that are the great things, the great blessings that are coming into your life now, that you're allowing into your life now, that that will change your life and change the people's lives around you. You know, we all have the power to do that. It's just not all of us are willing. Like you said, we're not all willing to be that person. You know, we want those people in our lives, but not everybody's willing to be that person. And so I thank you for taking the time today to be that person, be willing to share your story. You're willing to reach out to me and, and, and just kind of reconnect. And it's been just such a pleasure to hear about uh, what you've been through, where you're at now, where you're going, man, I hope that you know this relationship could could grow from here and that we would be able to stay in touch and because I really I don't talk to anybody really from from our from our college football days man i'd love I'd love to stay in contact with you and see what you're doing and help you out again in real estate any way I can after this interview, brother yeah,
1: sounds great I'm excited man it's like I said in the beginning, it's an honor and uh, I've been following you know I was going to say how I reconnected with you was sobriety to recovery podcast with jesse do you remember that yeah 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 jesse mogul i read a book on sobriety the unexpected joy of sobriety and then okay it led me to the jesse podcast and i've been listening to his podcast and then you were a guest it was ridiculous
0: no shit yeah no shit yeah oh man that's awesome bro i'm gonna have to call i'll, I'll call jesse or, or text him or something. let him know that that you had an impact and that that's how we got reconnected that's that's awesome. Man. And I love that this medium does that. I love that this that this place and what you're going to, man, the, the recovery scene, the support and, and just the groups and people that I'm finding, bro, like are like none other that I've ever met. You know, I've met some of the greatest people in the recovery scene because we truly, if you're in the, if you're truly in the recovery scene, man, all you want to do is help people. Yeah. All you want to do is help people because you know what it's like. You know, there's no worse feeling despair than being a slave to a substance.
1: Well, we're called to do it in step 12, man.
0: Right, right. Absolutely, man. So, hey, listen, thanks again for spending this hour with me, putting your heart on the line. Let me know what you've been up to the last, you know, 15 years or so. And Hakeem, just thank you so much, man. I appreciate you. I love you. And, and listeners, I hope you guys, I hope you guys enjoyed this hour as much as I did. And until next time, guys, peace. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. If you haven't done so already, head on over to your favorite podcast provider to subscribe and download the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. And if you or anyone you know is struggling with substance abuse or addiction issues, please point them to this podcast. Let them know they are not alone. And at the very least, reach out. DM me and I'll do what I can from where I'm at. You are best.